Good morning and good day, all you mothers out there. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Hay. And we have a spirited show for you today. Starting with a husband and wife team, uh, Nora Ganley Roper and Adam Polonsky. Um, as I mentioned before, um, to Nora, both Peter and my mother's names was Nora, and also our son's Adam. Anyhow, they're a team uh, doing something very interesting through their com- company called Lost Lantern. Um, it's something with whiskey, and we'll just let them tell you about it. It's something that's sort of a introducing a European tradition into uh, the whiskey distilling in this country. It, we're, we're talking on a really interesting subject, something I, until I read an article, knew nothing about, um, which Nora Ganley Roper hyphenated and Adam Polonsky are going to explain to us their mission, uh, their company called Lost Lantern Whiskey and what else, uh, that they're starting a new trend here in the States, essentially. Um, I, I, I found an article about this and then I checked first of all tell us about your relationship because that's so romantic <laughs> absolutely so uh so we're married we um actually we have been dating when we started the business but we actually got married um got engaged while we were traveling the country spending eight months on the road visiting distilleries all across the United States we got engaged in a Grand Teton National Park and went on our first distillery visit uh, for the business just after that. Yeah, and we met when Adam was writing at Whiskey Advocate um, in New York City, and I was working at After Wines and Spirits as well in New York City. So as, as we went on dates, it was always an, an easy topic to talk about whiskey and what we loved and explore <laughs> that and go to all the great cocktail bars in New York. So... All of our all of our friends were jealous of that of that easy conversation at the beginning. <laughs> of the well, That's a great let's, story. Let's 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 start let's start off with something that we that we didn't know that most people I think when especially when dealing with American whiskey don't know, and that is that there are not just producers distillers of whiskey, but there are also a class of people called independent distillers or independent producers, and you're one of those. Now, exp- explain how that works. If, if the, the model is Scotland, use that. If the model is not Scotland, then don't use that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, Lost Lantern is an independent bottler of American whiskey, and that means that we don't distill whiskey and we never plan to. We buy whiskey from distilleries all around the country and put them out both as blends that we create and as single casks that showcase the style and flavor of those particular distilleries. And this is based on a model that is... Is that, is that common in Scotland? If it is, I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's based on a model that um, it's actually very similar to how Scotch whiskey became popular in the first place. These independent bottlers have been in Scotland for... 200 years and they were the first whiskey blenders and um, even companies that are really well now known now like um, Johnny Walker and uh, Dewar's started out as independent bottlers uh, usually in grocery stores buying whiskey from around the country 
and 200 years later, they're the dominant power in Scotch whiskey. Um, but they're also traditional independent bottlers still that don't have their own distilleries. They buy unique whiskey from across Scotland. And often it's the only way to find single malts from individual Scottish distilleries that are not as well known. And that's, that's part of what we do is in, in the United States. There are um, traditionally the U.S. had distilleries mostly in Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana, but now there are distilleries in every state in the country, uh, more than 2,000 of them, and that's more whiskey than anyone could try. So we, we spend our time hunting down the best of what's out there and finding a, a new way to showcase that to people using this traditional model. Now, I, I remember when we, when we were in Scotland, this is when Ann and Peter were in Scotland, and it's, there's, a long, there's a long story associated with that, but we won't have to go into but we went, we picked a distillery to go to, and it was called Glenfiddich. And what, mm-hmm. made Glen, what made Glenfiddich distinctive, aside from the fact that it's really very good whiskey, is that the business is family-owned still to this day, which is really most unusual. A lot of the mm-hmm. brands, like Johnny Walker, have been absorbed by American giants of the, of the whiskey business and of the business of liquid spirits altogether and we we asked the person who was on the tour who was showing us the tour how how did they decide what went into the whiskey and the person with a thick scotch accent i won't i won't try <laughs> to emulate said it's all in the nose of this of the distiller mm-hmm. i seem yeah. to recall that he said the nose which i thought was very funny since you would have thought yeah. you would say the taste. Yeah. Yeah. And blending is definitely both both an art and a science. And for us, as people who tasted whiskey professionally for years, we tend more towards the art side of, of tasting many things and trusting our instincts as to what's good. Right. Uh, as we blend. Yeah. Between being a journalist and a retailer, we've, yeah, we've trained our palates. And so that's what we rely on through our our selection process for sure. Now, See, I always had the impression that at, like single malt scotch was better than any blended scotch. I mean, I, I think, think that's a general impression. I think that what we really like, we like both blended scotch and single malts, but we like about single malts in particular is the, the sense of place they can showcase mm-hmm. that it's, like the the Scotch whiskey that's from the island of Isla, they have this distinctly smoky flavor that is relatively uniquely of that place. And we see that um, in the United States as well. Um, a lot of the distilleries that we work with make American single malt, which was not something that existed until relatively recently. But they're doing the same thing as they are in Scotland, except in New Mexico and Arizona and Massachusetts. And we think that's really fun to see. Mm-hmm how these styles differ in a country with a totally different climate and different distilling tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think no, there is a reason. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Finish what you were saying. Cause I'm going to, okay. I was going to say, yeah, there is a resurgence in Scotland, especially of um, blended malt whiskey led in part by compass box. Um, that's really, shown the art of blending in a new way and we love what they're doing and hope that either we or someone else in the U.S. is able to do something like that here and show 
because you can create different flavors by blending whiskey than you could ever do um, by working with a single distillery release. Right now, but don't you lose some of the uh, the authentic terroir if you start blending? Yeah, yeah, yeah certainly. Um, but I think it depends. So I think the enjoyment. If if you drink whiskey so that you taste the terroir, I can absolutely see why single malt would be it would be your preferred spirit. Like but I Laphroaig. Think- Laphroaig happens to be yeah. one of my most favorite scotches. No, that's Yeah. <laughs> well, but that's not blended, is it? Oh, no. No, Hold it's on, not. Man. Well, it's not. Go ahead. Oh, I was oh, going to say, it's not blended with another distillery, but it is blended within the distillery. So it's multiple multiple barrels brought together um, to create okay. that. But, yes, it is, it is very much of Isla, <laughs> that, yeah. that PD flavor that is – is pretty clearly not from anywhere else. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and I didn't. We, I actually never really appreciated it fully until I was in Scotland at a B and B, and it was mm-hmm. cold and rainy like it regularly is, and yeah. we got lined up for a shot of it before dinner. <laughs> it was the best scotch I had ever tasted. That was so cold and miserable. We're not, no. No, that's an ideal pick me up for sure. Hold on a second here. I want I want to clarify something that I that sure. I'm questioning in my mind based on what Anne just said. She men- she mentioned the word terroir. And ter- terroir to me was associated with wine. Wine, what, right. What's what's associated with with whiskey is the water. And and also to an extent the grain which is used to create the alcoholic part of scotch or bourbon. And am, I, am I wrong here, or is, is Anne right, and am I wrong? So I think it's a great question because it's something that distillers and bottlers like us are discussing actively right now. Um, I think we we shy away from the term terroir just because it is so linked to I, know. I the just didn't know what soil. else I didn't know mm-hmm. another word that would describe what I'm talking about you know regional so we, is what you use yeah. we use some people use provenance um oh, and provenance. some people use yeah just regionality um regionality. but i think ter- personally I think terroir, everyone knows what that means, and so they, if you ask that question, I think we can all engage in a way that, like, is, is per- perfectly fine. Um, but I think that there, it's worth pointing out that there are some distillers that actually are farmers, too, that are directly addressing the idea of terroir, where they grow their grain right next to the distillery. They handpick which grain goes into the distillery they don't have any climate control in their warehouses and so in some ways i feel like they do have a claim to terroir but other distilleries are doing things that are very regional in style but that's kind of how we make that distinction between terroir which is very much about the underlying ingredients and regionality that is more about the flavors that are imparted through the process if that makes now sense. We're, now we're going to come back and talk about Lost Lantern in more detail in, ju- in just yeah. a few minutes. I'd, 
I, I, I thought you might be interested that right now, as, as, as we are sampling Lost Lantern whiskies, we're also sampling rye whiskey from Maryland. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, and it's really, it's really interesting. The, the, the Maryland based, uh, scotch is, is quite radically different than any of the other regional scotches like Pennsylvania and uh, Kentucky, for that matter, and Tennessee. You're talking about whiskeys, not scotches. Oh, did I say scotches? I meant... Yeah, you know, I, I whiskeys. <laughs> but the, 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 the whiskeys I'm talking about are whiskeys that the, that the provider who sent them to us said were, were distinctly of, of Maryland, not of mm. the, the other countries that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never knew yeah, that. I, I never that. knew. You see, I, I never knew. Uh, there's so much we learn on this job. I have to tell you, I never <laughs> knew. Never even thought of Maryland as being a big uh, distillery state. Now, now there's there's another source of confusion out there. I think, and that's between single cask, single barrel, and single malt. Can you, as yeah. experts, clarify so, the distinction? Absolutely. So um, a single malt is a style of whiskey that can be made anywhere in the world. And basically what it means is the single means it was made at one distillery. And malt means it's made from 100% malted barley. So okay. Scotch, Scotch single malt, like at Laphroaig, it means it's made entirely at Laphroaig and it's all barley. We One of our first releases is a New Mexico single malt, and it means the same thing. It's made at one distillery in New Mexico, and it's 100% malted barley, and that can also be true in Taiwan, in India, anywhere else in the world. Uh, A single cask um, is literally just one barrel of whiskey, whereas a single malt, if it's a a big Scottish brand, it could be, that single malt, it's all from the one distillery, but it could be hundreds of barrels blended together, or dozens. Right, right. Um, But a single cask is just one barrel, and every barrel in a warehouse is different. Even if they were distilled in the same day, put in the warehouse right next to each other. Just the nature of interacting with wood over 20 years or five years or whatever it may be means they can be different. So each one has its distinctive character, and that's why we taste so many single barrels to find one that we think is, is really exciting. Well, now, you're, you're playing your, your hand, if you like, is not, o- not only that you're using different sources of the liquid that goes in the barrel, but you're also using a variety of different barrels, breaking the code, if you like, of bourbon, which, as we understand it, has to be, by definition, made in a new American oak barrel. So so you flirt with that and and use different casks, different woods in your blending process. It it depends what we're making. Like, we've released some single-cask bourbon, and that is, as you say, it's a new American oak. Um, but American single malt doesn't have to be a new American oak. It can be in, in many things. And our, our flagship blend, our American Vada malt, is a blend of different single malts. So every whiskey in the blend was made at a single distillery, and everything in it is 100% malted barley, and then we blended that together. But the barrels were different. Some of them were in new oak. Some of them were in used oak. Some of them were in sherry barrels. One of them was in an apple brandy barrel. And you can do that. You just can't call it bourbon because it's not in a new barrel and it's not made from mm-hmm. corn. Um, so it's, it's a different kind of thing. Now, you, you introduced a word that was totally strange to me called vatted. 
Mm. Yeah. Does, what, what does vetted mean to you and what does it mean to the people who might buy your wonderful stuff? So vetted is actually a term that we took from Scotland. Vatted malts used to be a term that was used. It's actually no longer used in Scotland, but it was historically used to indicate that the underlying components of a blend are all single malt. There is no grain whiskey included. There's nothing else included. So we love that term and love the significance of it. So we brought it and applied it here to our um, first blend because it's both a great indication of what it is. That there, it's only single malts. There's nothing else in there. And also it was a nice tip of the hat, if you will, to people who have been drinking that and malt from Scotland for years and years who would automatically see that acknowledgement of the tradition. Okay, so so the people who were in the know would know what vetted means. I'm 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 an ignorant peasant, so I don't know that. It's definitely a very niche term. Yes, sorry. Now you, now you 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 started out your business, if I understand it, with what seemed to me to be a totally mad idea <laughs> that, that you would vet, if you like, whiskies from. A number of different suppliers. I think there were. I can't remember in reading the background information whether you whether you whether you made it six or twelve, but whatever it is, you were you were putting things together that ordinarily would not be found together, and not and not, and not just two, but, but six or twelve. Exactly, and that's also influenced by traditions, the tradition of that in Malta, Scotland, where those often would have whiskey from all over Scotland, some from the, the islands and the highlands, some from Speyside, some from the lowlands. Um, but in the United States, there's just such, it's so, so much bigger of a country. And our, our first blend has, Amer- it's all American single malt whiskey, but it comes from Texas, Washington, Oregon, New Mexico, Massachusetts, and Virginia. It's all very, very different cli- climates, different distilleries. And we think that, Doing this brings out flavors that are that are different than you can get from them individually. The flavors are great on their own, but they also come together in this unique and compelling way. Um, there are different kinds of smoke in there that had never been blended before this. Um, there are other kinds of unique cast treatments, and we think it was a, a really fun uh, experiment and chance to bring these flavors together. And, and, and people were were willing to cooperate with you. It's, yes, see, I was going to ask that. I was going to say it's a dumb question, but how did these people that of these distillers, how do they react to the fact that you're going to take their product and, and blend it up with somebody else's product and then sell it as your own? We, we, we're pretty happy with how that worked out because the way we got them all on board was we said, hey, we want to do this. Do you want to do this blend with us? Because they all have spent years blending with their own whiskeys inside their distillery but they don't get to play around with other people's whiskeys very much. So we actually created our first blend collaboratively, getting the distillers from these places in a room together, bringing these samples and tasting and blending together. So they, we didn't have to twist their arms. They were, they were really excited to be a part of it. Right. And we actually have more distilleries signing on for the next um, release because it was such, such a, it's a great whiskey and it, it um, was so much fun and such a fun project for everyone. It's not, 
how we will do all of our blends because it is definitely a lot of logistical work to get everyone um, in the same room, but it's a really special thing to launch our brand with is this collaborative whiskey um, that we made, I guess, two, almost two years ago <laughs> at this point. Um, Time but, flies when you're having fun, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it's amazing to me because we've been in rooms uh, full of um, of um, winemakers, and uh, mm-hmm. you know they were very territorial, <laughs> to say the least. Also generational, yeah. which is another issue. But well, now, now, here, in Italy, I was talking about. I'm, I'm looking mm-hmm. at another section of the background information that we got. And you've got Santa Fe, New Mexico, single malt, Cedar Ridge, Iowa, straight bourbon whiskey, New York, distilling company, straight rye, finished in apple brandy cask. You, you're, not, you're not shy about mixing things together. <laughs> so those are, those are actually, those are single, those are all single casts. So those are released as distinct products. Got it. Okay. Now, now the yeah. next paragraph, the next paragraph introduces a new a new character in the equation because you've got second fill second fill and first fill and i think i got the impression from the beginning of reading your story uh, that one of the things that was important about what you were doing was that one of the one of the, the tools in your vocabulary if you like was the fact that you used new casks of American oak. Now you're saying, no, we're not doing that anymore. We'll go, we filled it once and we're going to fill it again. We're like, we're like Scotsman, we're cheap. <laughs> um, so for, for now and so far, um, we, we're not in charge of the barrel that the whiskey is in. So we actually okay. buy the whiskeys when they're mature. So oh, that okay, second bill... Yeah, the second fill, that that happened to be how that distillery did it. And we love second fill cast, not because, necessarily because it saves us any money because they've used the barrel for the second time, but we find you actually get different flavors. Oak imparts such strong vanilla and caramel and oak spice, and when something has already been in the cask and taken out a lot of that, you get... Um, a totally different, often more delicate flavor profile. So we like the we like doing both because they have really different flavors to add to our portfolio or, or what any individual distillery does. Got it. Um, it seems to me that your your big big hard job is going to be your branding. Hello. Well, we, yeah, I'm just one of the things. To, is, go ahead. Yeah, we we're excited about our branding because we get to we get to say the name of the distillery that we're working with. Like it it says on our label, it says Lost Lantern up at the top, but for a single casks, right under that, it says where it came from. It says hand selected single casks from Balcones Distilling, Texas Straight Bourbon Whiskey, and yeah, even I, for our blend, I know it says, people from Balcones. I mean, I. I was surprised to see that on the sample we got, yeah, Balcones. And that's something we're really proud of, that we get to showcase what they're doing and use their name, because for us, we don't want anyone to think that we distilled it. We want them 
to know that we didn't and say, here's this distillery that maybe you haven't heard of before, maybe you have, but here's a really unique take on their whiskey and a great way to try it in a slightly different form. Right. Our single cast in many ways we see as a curated lineup. So our tagline is shining a light on the independent spirit, and that's what we're thinking about there is we're shining a light on these distilleries and either providing an introduction to that distillery or providing a unique perspective on what you've already seen from that distillery. So we feel very lucky that distilleries trust us enough to let us put their distillery yeah, name sure. on our label. That's what you're saying, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. Do you think this is going to be the start of something really big? Because you're trying to tap into a, a long-held tradition in, in Europe, right? And, mm-hmm. and you want to establish it in, in the States. I mean, is, is this going to be a new direction for the um, whiskey lovers in the States? To see we think your... so. I'm... Yeah. One, one of, so one of the crazy things about the U.S. is there are over 2,000 distilleries. I think Adam mentioned this already, but we think that what a lot of what we're adding, especially at the beginning, is a clear sense of what distilleries that you may never have heard of are doing things that are worth trying. So, because who has time to sift through 2,000 distilleries and you know that some of them are going to be amazing and some of them are going to have whiskey that's a little bit young and some of them may have whiskey that just doesn't match your palate, but that's a lot of work and a lot of money to do that. So we think that, especially with our single cast line, there we will be helping a lot of people just kind of jump over that hurdle of sifting through things and start tasting whiskey from distilleries that they don't know. And it also is a great way for distilleries that are doing amazing things but are maybe focused more regionally to get the kind of recognition that we think that they deserve on the national stage. Now, the Bal- the Balcones straight bourbon whiskey has an interesting cl- – I'm sure it's true, but it's, it's, for, for, forward in the description is the roasted – Blue corn from Texas. Yes. Is, is, is roasted blue corn from Texas that different than, te- than corn grown as high as the elephant's eye in Iowa or Indiana? I mean, is there, is there that much difference? It, it can be, and, and for them, we definitely think it is. Because if you think about bigger bourbons, I mean, they're making so much quantity that most of the grain they buy is coming through the commodity grain system. It's uh, right. it's not grown just for them. It's just bought on the open market. Whereas these smaller distilleries, like Norma was saying before, they either some of them are farmers and others work very closely with farmers to grow something just for them that is a strain that's grown for its flavor potential, not just for something that can produce as much as possible. So the blue corn definitely has a different flavor more um, more depth and richness to it. And the roasting brings out some interesting smoky notes uh, that almost make it taste like a smoked whiskey, in my opinion, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's a bourbon. Yeah, well, I think it's all very exciting. I think we, we need to uh, um, make sure listeners have a, a handle on this by giving them your URL, your website, and I'm sure there's more information there. And... Uh, and, and tell us how to get to the website and then how to actually purchase some of your product. 
Yeah, so we do have very in-depth information. People can go well down the rabbit hole with us on full barrel details on our website, which is lostlanternwhiskey.com, and that's whiskey with an E. Um, we also post a lot on our Instagram. Uh, our handle there is also Lost Lantern Whiskey with an E. And we try to make it really easy to purchase. We we're currently doing pretty much only online sales. There's a, there's one store in California that is it has some, but the best way to find um, the whiskey is to go onto our website, select your state, and we'll send you off to the place that is able to ship to you. Very good. Got it. Okay. So, 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 the, so the difficult, the difficult part that says, how do I, how do I get this into my, into my wine cellar, or whatever, or whatever you call a cellar full of bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, okay. So, uh, listeners, um, this is something to put on your radar and to track. Because I mean, there's so many possibilities out there. I'm really as curious to to find out how you're going along and what direction you're taking as you go along, <laughs> you know, as much as the uh, the product that we could examine now. So yeah, um, well, it's fun. I mean, you must have having a really great time, and I'm I really am happy to be able to pick up on this and, and track you and call you, talk to you. And, and yeah, well, thank you for taking the time to chat. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Listen, listen up here, folks. This, this is sipping whiskey. Yes. Yes. You, you, don't, you don't put this in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I once got sick on, on uh, Manhattan, so I've always hated them, so I wouldn't put anything <laughs> in Manhattan. I wouldn't even taste <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, you two. Well, continue having a great time and producing wonderful uh, uh, whiskey, American whiskey. And We'll talk to you again with your when you have a new um, a new what do we call it um, a new development oh, wow. to report about your direction yeah. of the company. Thank you both. That sounds great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure chatting with you both. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next up, we're going to be talking to Andre Darlington, who's a, um, a whiskey writer and expert, um, whose latest book is called Booze Cruise, just what we he, all he's mean. He's an expert on every kind of booze you can imagine. Yeah, he's tra- he travels the globe uh, sipping spirits, and he, this book, he tells us where to travel to, um, now that we're going to be opening, um, all around the world. And what bars to go to, the best bars on all the continents and every major port of call, and as well as giving us recipes for the cocktails that are iconic to that particular area, geographical area, or bar. 
um, and even including some bar food recipes so that you don't just drink on an empty stomach. And he's an interesting guy too. He's a very interesting guy. And he, he said he said his people came over with William Penn. Yes. And now here's Andre Darlington, who we had such fun talking to. Well, we know we had this wonderful conversation with Andre Darlington before we started the recording. And Peter wants to go over it all again. <laughs> He's full of trivia <laughs> about Darlington, England. I want to hear it all. I want to equip Andre to win money in bars by by knowing about <laughs> trivia associated with Darlington. And, and he, he didn't know he didn't know either one of them. One, one, one was what was built in Darlington in pieces, then installed where it was supposed to go. And the, and the answer, for those of you who don't know, is the Sydney Harbour Bridge in Australia, otherwise known colloquially in Sydney as the Coat Hanger. <laughs> we, we, we won't do the train. We'll, we'll, we'll only do the Stockton to Darlington trail, train line if we run out of things to talk about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, what we're really supposed to be talking about is brew, no, no, booze cruise. Um, a tour of the world's essential mixed drinks. You, you may pick up on the fact that Andre is a, a spirits writer, long-time experienced spirits writer, and you must have drunk a lot for this book, Andre. I almost called it Around the World in 60 Hangovers, but that <laughs> didn't sound as good. It was an awful lot of travel. Let's have as a starting point. What's your version of who invented the cocktail? Well, my version of who invented the cocktails, it came from Punch originally, uh, the good Brits when they were over here. But, you know, oh, it was, okay. it's interesting. The moment that Europeans landed on the shores of the New World, they were looking to ferment things right away because they only yeah, brought so they didn't so bring any, liquor right? and beer with them. Right. So they were out of it <laughs> by the time they got here. And basically the record is, Build a house, find some food, try to figure out what we can ferment. <laughs> and I do, and I do think that kind of spirit, uh, you know, not to play on the word, but that kind of spirit of invention and necessity, I think, kind of led to a lot of, um, you know, led to a lot of ingenuity in American in American drinks. Let's let's say because Americans were putting all kinds of strange things together. Right. Um, you know, the, the the founding fathers here, one of their favorite things was persimmon beer. And they fell in love with persimmon, which they hadn't known in Europe. And uh, and it's actually delicious. There, There's a place in Philadelphia. I, did, I that like makes persimmon, it, or persimmon beer. Yeah, they're delicious. Um, now, let's kind of, jump um, back now. Did okay. you think, I read in your introduction that you actually did all this traveling around the world um, uh, before the um, lockdown for COVID, is that what gave you the? If that's the case, yeah. you didn't know that we were not going to be able to travel. But did you just keep the same um, uh, concept going, or what? What's yeah, what inspired this? this crazy group? timing. This is crazy timing. Uh, I had wanted to do a global sort of happy hour book. I wrote a book called The New Cocktail Hour in 2016, and it had always been kind of in the back of my mind to, you know, do happy hour the way that you would 
the Italians do it or the French do it. Now, a bunch of single-subject books have come out. Yeah, a bunch of single-subject books have come out since kind of doing that. And uh, my editor and I sort of hatched this idea uh, to do a global cocktail book. And I thought when the idea got going, well, I really need to go see particularly Asia um, now to, to have any credibility for the book and to really see what was going on over there. Specifically well, there's a Singapore, whole bunch going Hong on, Kong. strangely. There I think. really is. There yeah. really I is. keep trying. No, oh, you yeah. give me any of that um, that premium uh, uh, scotch that the Japanese have constructed. Ah, yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, yeah, I heard. Pokey Highballs is in, the, is in this book. Um, yeah, and it was just bizarre timing. I went around the world. I did 11 cities on this most recent journey, uh, mainly to, to, to hit a few Asian cities before returning. And I returned to Los Angeles, and everything closed behind me. And then I had written a good, you know, before I left, I was reaching out to people all over the world and had a good chunk of the manuscript done, I would say a little bit more than half. And I came home and wrote the book during lockdown, and here we are. So just phenomenal tra- timing. Well, totally why don't you lay out exactly <laughs> what you, you did with this book? I mean, you, you broke it down into what you view as primary, uh, primary and primarily cocktail cities, um, and how yeah. did you do that? How did you figure out? Yeah, it was, it was a combination of trying to have good geographic diversity. You know, the book is broken down. Um, it's a little more than 40 cities around the globe. The book is broken down according to sort of how travel books would into, you know, the Americas, Europe, Africa, Yeah, you have Asia. Europe, then you um, have Africa and the Middle East. Asia, the Americas, Oceania. I mean, I never even thought of Oceania, except I see it's Sydney. <laughs> we lived yeah, in Australia for a while. Yeah. It's Australia and Indonesia and New Zealand. And that is just kind of conforming to how travel books um, would break it up. I thought of a number of different ways. It could have been in alphabetical order, but I thought that would be a little confusing. And it is interesting to see the continental differences. Um, and and similarities, I guess. You know, it's interesting that South America is very similar to Asia in the way they do drinks because they're tropics. Um, you know, so you go to Asia and you get lots of daiquiris and whatnot. Uh, and then, um, you know, North America and, and Europe, of course, are very similar because they have sort of climate climate similarities and a number of other similarities uh, as well. But um, it was an interesting way to lay out the book. Uh, some of the choices were simply... You know, there were some hard choices in there. Vienna is a great cocktail city. It's not in there because I have Budapest and, and Prague. And some of that was to, you know, give some diversity to the rest of the world. Um, you know, because Europe, you know, every major city in Europe has cocktails, just like the, like the U.S. Yeah, well, they do um, now. It's true. Yeah, um, right. Uh, just in the last four or five years, which has been astonishing. Uh, yeah, I mean, what actually created this cocktail renaissance? I mean, it's been going on for a while now. Um, but, I mean, I, I know a lot of these craft cocktail people and these classic cocktail people, um, bartenders and so forth. Um, and and it's, it's been a big, big thing on the radar, um, even with that horrible museum that cocktail Tales of the Cocktails or whatever it is. <laughs> that, isn't that yeah. Museum Drury? I mean, <laughs> in New it Orleans. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I thought they could have done a little day. better than that, huh? Andre, did you go, did you go there to the Museum of the American Cocktail? I have Cocktail? been there. I we, have we, been there, we, yes. we, yeah. we went, and when we came out, we complained, so we got our money back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's some spoons and a few things. You know, it's the, the concept that counts, I guess. It'll grow as, as they go. Yeah, I mean, but the, you the, also the have, I might point out, the case I forget it, is that you highlight some exceptional bartenders. One of the things with Cocktail Renaissance that I've come to realize is how many wonderful, brilliant characters there are in, yes. in the bar industry. Yeah, mean, isn't it fun? <laughs> <laughs> they really talking, are characters. I guess you're talking to one of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, what's that, what's that one in New York that's uh, famous? Is it the Black Rat? Uh the the Rabbit. Are you, are you thinking the um the the Rabbit? Uh, the the one in New York. Somewhere. I thought it was the Black Rabbit. Yeah, maybe I, the Black. Maybe the Black Rabbit. Yeah. The, there's one that I, the Irish guys came over and did one in the down near Five Points. Um, the Rabbit Groggery. Uh, oh yeah, it's a, it's kind of a fun place. It's very a little Disneyfied Irish bar, basically kind of retro, but it's it's fun. Yeah, I loved your section on double because we've done a lot of um, interviews and, and programs and stuff uh, in Ireland, and and it's true they're the greatest storytellers in the world. <laughs> oh, it's so much fun. They're not bad drinkers either. <laughs> no, they can really keep up. <laughs> Or we have to keep up with them, I should say. Well, you know, you have such a great sense of humor in this book. I want to mention that, uh, listeners, anything you want to know about cocktails, it seems as in this book. In fact, it even has the section of um, travel items, to, which yeah. even tells you about the spelling of whiskey. We just had a go around with somebody about that the other day, and uh, they're, they're using the EY. And 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 so, but they're Americans. Yeah, it's a very curious thing, right? That it is spelling, weird. Yeah, uh, it? it is weird. And then some American to make it even more confusing, some American companies have decided to side on the side of not using the E. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's uh, you know it's just um, an interesting feature of the of the cocktail world. There are many. <laughs> oh, there are many, and uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you, this is a little off subject because uh, it's not valuable, but do you know anything about the PIN project? No. Okay, because I, I asked um, our bar manager at a restaurant what he was wearing in his lapel, and it was a PIN. And he told oh, me about is the, it for, um is it for um, safety when you go home, right? You can... There was a project for, you know, women when they're No, the what it means is, issues. which I think is strange, it means if you're wearing this, it means I'm not drinking. <laughs> ah. Okay, there's been a couple of, a couple of projects like that. Yeah, okay. So he's, uh, but I have not uh, been able to there. locate any of the people involved with it. But anyhow, so, so how to use this book? You said how to use this book. How should we use this book? Are you suggesting we should all start traveling around the world drinking? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I hope it inspires that. But more than anything, I really hope it inspires people to 
you know, do a little armchair travel and, you know, get a couple items. I tried to make it, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a book, cocktail book for the American market. So I tried to make it so that some of these more abstruse ingredients are available, you know, available online or I tried to make the ingredients something that people could repeat at home pretty easily. And maybe they find themselves a new favorite. Um, and I really hope that people say, ah, let's go to Hong Kong tonight and make a cocktail for, out of it. Um, you <laughs> know, that's a and great idea. Was, was, yeah, and, and I put a little food in there for that same reason. You know, every once in a while, I think I have, like, Swedish, Swedish cardamom cookies in there, you know, around the holidays, have a little glug that makes, you know, the cookies, and uh, do, a little, little, do a little travel. And um, I, more than anything, I just want to expose people to the rest of the world, I think, you know, through cocktails. Um, it really is kind of a travel book, and cocktails happen to be my medium. Um, and cocktails, you know, they're so popular right now, and they really do grab people's imaginations. And I do think that people have fun recreating things. I did another book a few years ago with Turner Classic Movies where I pulled cocktails out of classic films. So I watched a lot of classic films, which was fun. Anyway, I loved them. That was fun. Yeah. Um, you know, I was pulling, I was pulling cocktails out, and so people can watch it, watch that movie, and then make a cocktail that's in that movie, um, or if, if not directly in, inspired by. And I feel like it's a little bit of escapism, which we all need right now. I think both physically. Well, that's and for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I was interested in what you would do with the uh, the Muslim culture, and <laughs> yeah. just tell us some of those the little tips that you have for drinking in Muslim countries. Yeah, I had to address it. I felt like straight on because even when I was in Lebanon, I you know you sort of make the mistake. Oh, I'm in a Muslim country. Well, you're not in Lebanon. You, they're a triad, which is controlled by Christians, Muslims, and, and um, Druze. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's interesting. And then I was in Dubai, which is, you know, the most friendly of all of the, um, of all the Arab countries to al- alcohol consumption. And even there, you're, in theory, required to have a license. Um, and there's all kinds of anecdotes there of being, you know, if you are even tipsy there in a hotel, yeah, you can, they can throw you You'll be whisked away. Yeah, yeah, you'll be. Locals will get thrown in jail. Foreigners will just they'll just ask you to leave. You know, they'll put you on a plane the next day. And uh, <laughs> it, it's pretty it's pretty fascinating. I felt like I did need to address it head on. And there's another gentleman who wrote a great book called The Wet and the Dry. It's a, a great drinks writer named Lawrence Osborne, who I was actually able to meet up with. Um, while I was traveling around the world for this book, he's in, he's based in Bangkok. And um, I, I just wanted to address it straight on because I think people forget, certainly in this country. Um, and, you know, since Arab Spring, there's been, I mean, the whole world, I think, has gone more fundamentalist in, in general. Everybody seems to be doubling down on their identities. And that's certainly been an issue in cities like Cairo and Istanbul, which were these incredible oh, yeah. port cities. Um, you know, that had great bars. And there's still good bars there. It's not like there aren't. Um, so, you know, I hope those cities don't feel too terribly slighted. But, it, you know, the things had sort of had changed. I'm always, in this book, I'm hearkening back often to this former writer named Charles H. Baker Jr., who, ran around, who circumnavigated the globe actually three times between the two world wars. 
And he wrote a book called The Gentleman's Companion, where he talks about it. It's yeah, a wonderful had, book with great anecdotes. Yeah, you mentioned and, that uh, right away, and I wondered how I missed, I'd ever seen it. Yeah, it's an obscure one, but it's been, it's one of those things that, it's one of those books that's been brought back through this cocktail resurgence with cocktail aficionados going back into the, you know, they've really gone back into history and plucked out these books that were lost. Um, he wrote, I think, for Town and Country back in the day, wrote from the, the Times, um, and he's sort of a, you know, he was sort of a writer humorist, um, so the book is very funny, plus it has amazing anecdotes. And I really had to go back to him because uh, this book is, in a way, the, it, it, as shocking as it may seem, no one seems to have traveled around the world just to drink and write about it in a very, <laughs> very, very long time. And things had changed since he did that. He did it by boat, you know, so places like Cairo, you know, he talks about going to, through the Suez Canal, uh, you know, he talks about stopping in some pretty obscure spots in um you know, the South China Seas that were refueling stations. And, and, and you know, for this book, it's, it was this idea of, like, my things have changed. You know, people can just get on an airplane, and cocktails have really followed not port routes, but capitalism, basically, itself. And wherever the economy is good, here comes the cocktail. Um, yes. And it's been it, it was it was fascinating, and, and I think and I could still see that happening when I went to Kiev. Kiev still feels I mean it's been a number of years since their revolution, but um, Kiev still feels fresh. They're still discovering cocktails because they've joined the West, I guess you know in a way they've joined Anglo drinking habits. Well, they already had great Russian drinking habits, but they joined they they combined those those drinking habits with uh, with the cocktail. And you just well, get this they, you sense know, of enthusiasm there. They used to be so different anyhow. I mean, I remember uh, I went to school in, in Florence in, in Italy, and if you ordered a martini, you know what you got. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Probably and, wasn't very good, right? <laughs> and and, and the, I still remember the wine in Greece um, that was all Retsina. That was it. There was yeah. No it. Yeah. And, and not only that, but before Nonino, I remember having to, to drink grappa because I was on a student's budget, <laughs> and it was like it was it was really bad. <laughs> yeah, grappa is intense. That's a, that'll make for an interesting evening. There's a lot of with, it has a high sugar content. You get pretty pretty delirious on it. <laughs> you know what I loved is uh, this, when we were in Peru discovering. Um, um, Pisco, I love it. Yeah, yes, Pisco is amazing. It is. I mean, and yeah, you like it too, Robert, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, and the, it, you know, it's just it's fun. It's been it's interesting to see this craft cocktail revolution that was really fomented and I think it really appeared in London first and spread to New York pretty quickly. And um, one of the things that's interesting is then. There was a, a gentleman named Dick Bradzell who really kind of is, is regarded as kicking off this craft cocktail movement in London, and his acolytes then flew down to or back to Australia. So this thing sort of happened through, really spread through the Commonwealth and to the United States really quickly, and then really started to go around the globe. I want to say five, six years ago, we start seeing uh, you know some of the first craft cocktail bars and spots like Singapore. Mm -hmm. Um, and in those, what's remarkable is those Asian cities, because they're young, they're wealthy, 
They have this incredible sense of optimism and they're discovering, it's a generation that's discovering new things. Um, they have come on the scene very, very quickly. Uh, so so it's Singapore, China, you know, it's kind of look. China is a huge market for for cocktails and whiskey. Yeah. And huge. You yes. never think yeah. of China as being major heart spirit drinkers. <laughs> Yeah, they're discovering everything. It is pretty phenomenal. I mean, I was a, I did a lot of wine writing before I um, this, these cocktail books have sort of taken over my life in a good way. But I did lots of wine writing, and, you know, then it was, you know, the Chinese are drinking the French wines, and then they bought Robert Parker's website. And, you know, so I saw it happening in wine. It probably happened a little sooner, maybe a decade or 15 years ago. And then cocktails really in the last five years are just exploding there. Um, and Shanghai was fascinating. I had never been to Shanghai before, um, and it was phenomenal to be able to visit it, especially uh, before the outbreak of coronavirus. So, you know, and I was able to go to Hong Kong, too, which is one of the cities that I would re- return to immediately. Uh, and I was there. Yeah, I know. It's, it it's seems, changed, uh, you know, um, so so precarious. It's so precarious. And we yeah. had, uh, you know, there were riots when I was there. I was in a cocktail bar and a riot went past, you know, <laughs> that was an interesting experience. I had a couple of times on this trip where I was drinking a cocktail in a window with a riot going past. Um, yeah. so. <laughs> well, I got tear gas. I've been tear gas a couple of times. Oh no. Yeah. That's that lovely, uh, this, herp- this happened further down the road. I think they did have a clash with police, but yeah, some of these cities are very, uh, pre- precarious places. Um, and, well, uh, I think this is a wonderful book, Andre, and I think that um, oh, it, it has so much information. And since you can't really go anyplace much, listeners, you, you really will enjoy this book. Again, it's, it's Booze Cruise, a tour of the world's essential mixed drinks. And the author is Andre Darlington, who writes with a great light touch and a sense of humor so <laughs> so it's, ah, it's fun you. and you get not only uh, cocktail recipes but also um some food suggestions as well so you touched all bases <laughs> yeah well thank you so much i'm i'm so excited to launch this book um it's really you know i i we put a dedication in there about uh, covid going around the world because i have a number of bar suggestions most of them, I believe, are still open, so the suggestions are, are valid right. if people, you know, as things start to open up yeah. in, in Europe this summer at least. Uh, but it really is kind of a love letter to this um, great craft cocktail resurgence we've seen uh, go around on the planet in the last decade. Well, it's, it's fun, and it does give you kind of a, a little touch of wonder left here. <laughs> but, but do it in your cocktail hour at home, listeners, right now. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, anyhow, well, Andre, it was great meeting you. So, so what do we say? Do we say cheers or bottoms up? Yeah, cheers and, and bottoms up. Um, okay. okay. So, there you have it, my dear. Yes, and uh, again, happy Mother's Day to all of you listeners out there that are mothers. Um, or to uh, the and to the listeners that are not mothers, you get extra points for just being a listener. And also, if somehow we could wish the people who are not listening who are mothers, happy Mother's Day. That's a wrap for today. And well, until the next week, well, let's let's not forget. Rest in peace, 
Nora Henderson, and rest in peace, Nora Davidson. Right. We're, 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 we're thinking of you, my dears. We think of you often, and uh, we hope that wherever, wherever you are, you're doing fine. And uh, in the meantime, we'll be here same time, same place next week. We hope you will be too. Bye-bye.